0: If you've been with us, we've been studying through the book of Hebrews this summer, and over the last several weeks, we've really been focused on this idea of Jesus serving as our high priest, uh, in the many ways that happens. Last week, we went on the long and tenuous journey of trying to understand who on the earth is Melchizedek, and why is he so important to the author of Hebrews. And for those of you who journeyed with me last week, thanks for coming back this week. I told you it it would only be one... Rocky Journey of Melchizedek, the author of Hebrews, has kind of put him aside now and back into some more understandable and relatable things. This morning what we really want to look at and focus on is this idea of Jesus as our perfect sacrifice. Jesus as our perfect sacrifice. And we're really going to cover chapter 8, chapter 9, and half of chapter 10 simply by talking about some content in chapter 9. And I'll leave the rest for you to read and understand that it really is just expounding upon this big idea of Jesus as our perfect sacrifice. When I was in graduate school, I worked full-time at a bank, which was an interesting job. In many ways, it was very frustrating because customer service with people's money is not an exciting reality. Because usually when they're calling you, they're frustrated by something that's happened. Uh, And customers nowadays don't come into banks, or at least then, I'm assuming it's even worse now, because you can do everything online. Your deposits are direct deposit, And so when you began to see people, you began to fear them, because they were only coming because something was wrong, right? If everything was right, you would never, ever see them, because there's really no reason to go to a bank uh, for most people these days. But One of the most interesting customers we had at the bank, and they would come in all the time, and they were actually nice people, they weren't angry about things, was this kosher chicken processing plant. There were These two interesting characters who owned this plant, but they, they lived in New York. They lived in Brooklyn, and they would just come down every week to sort of kind of oversee, do the financial transactions, whatever it was. And the manager at the at the bank that I worked at got very interested in what it was that happened at this kosher chicken processing plant. And so he got them to agree to give him a tour of the kosher chicken processing plant. And bank manager that he was, he was dressed in his suit and all these wonderful things, and he arrives for the tour at the kosher chicken processing plant, and the first thing they give him is a complete body suit, right, to cover everything that he has. And he says, well, what's going on? And they said, you are going to get bloody, right? You're not going to be in the mix, but just, just by journeying through there, there's, just, there's going to be blood. And I think he immediately regretted his decision <laughs> to tour the kosher chicken processing plant. But as, he, as Dave related to me about his story of journeying through this, in the one part where he said the amount of blood was unimaginable and unthinkable because the blood had to be completely drained from these chickens, right, in in this kosher way. A rabbi kind of there, proceeding over, making sure everything was done right. And then we began to think, after Dave's journey there, we began to see these men in a different way, right? Uh, They're still wonderful men, still a a reputable business, all these different things, but understanding exactly what it was that they did to deliver the chicken that we would eat later, on on a Saturday or a Friday or a Tuesday night for dinner, understanding the journey that these chickens went on to to become... Dinner, these are things that we don't like to think about, right? You don't want to sit down for a meal and consider the journey of the animal from where it was to your plate, right? Because no blood is not neutral. Blood is not neutral. No one likes blood, unless you're Dexter Morgan or someone crazy like that, right? No one likes blood. It's not neutral. It is the scent and the smell of death, as it were. We'll figure out in a minute that Blood, in, in terms of how God understands it, represents both life and death because it is the life source, but, but its presence outside of the body sort of reeks of the idea of death because life is leaving the body. And then we'll ultimately see in the sacrifices is that it's the, this death that also brings back life. And it's why blood sacrifices are so interesting. The blood is not neutral. It's not neutral in any way, shape, or form. This morning, as we look at this idea of Jesus as our perfect sacrifice, really, what the author wants to do in his letter to this group of people is really compare the high priestly ministry of Jesus uh, over against the high priestly or priestly ministry of the old covenant people, right? The days, uh, the Jewish people, the the the, the system that they had come out of the system that was still existing uh, in, in that day, the sacrificial system that existed the writer to Hebrews wants to compare and contrast these two sacrificial systems. How does Jesus function as a high priest in terms of sacrifice? And how did the priestly, old covenant, Old Testament system function in terms of sacrifices? And I think that in, in four ways, the writer to Hebrews wants to show us how Jesus' sacrifice and high priestly office is actually superior uh, and therefore ought to be pursued uh, as opposed to uh, the Old Covenant system. So let me show you these four ways, and then we'll kind of go back and, and talk about each of them. The first is it's superior in terms of location. We'll talk about what that means in a second. The second is that it's superior in terms of timing. We'll talk about that again in a, in a few minutes. The third is that it's superior in what I'll call in terms to depth, in terms of what it actually does and accomplishes. And then the last, really on the basis of these three things, it's superior in terms of the security That it offers to people who participate in it, who utilize the system. So, location, timing, depth, and security. Hebrews chapter 9, verse 1. Listen to what the writer to Hebrews says. He says, Now in the first covenant, there were regulations for worship and also an earthly sanctuary. Right? We're talking about location, a sanctuary on earth. Listen to this. A tabernacle was set up, Uh, In its first room was the lampstand and the table with its consecrated bread. This was called the Holy Place. Behind the second curtain was a room called the Most Holy Place, uh, which had the golden altar of incense and the gold-covered Ark of the Covenant. This Ark contained the gold jar of manna, Aaron's staff that had budded in the stone tablets of the Covenant. Above the Ark was the cherubim of the glory, overshadowing the atonement cover, Uh, But we cannot discuss these things in detail now. In other words, this is a pretty luxurious reality. he says some basic things, but doesn't want to go on. He says this, When everything had been arranged like this, the priest entered regularly into the outer room to carry on their ministry. But only the high priest entered the inner room, and that only once a year, and never without blood, which he offered for himself and for the sins of the people that they had committed in ignorance. The Holy Spirit was showing by this that the way into the most holy place had not yet been disclosed as long as the first tabernacle was still functioning. This is an illustration for the present time, indicating that the gifts and sacrifices being offered were not able to clear the conscience of the worshiper. They are only a matter of food and drink and various ceremonial washings, external regulations applying until the time of a new order. So... All that language basically to say, there was a system and a structure, a place, a location that sacrifice happened in the Old Covenant. There was what was called the tabernacle, and then under King Solomon, what became the temple, right? God's dwelling place, a house for God. And inside the temple were various places as you got closer to the center. And in the outer place was a place where lots of people could go, And as you got closer and closer, it became more and more exclusive. And then ultimately, we came to a place called the Court of the Priests. And this place was only allowed for priests and their ministry. No one else could go there except for the priests. And there was even one more court inside that. It was called the Holy of Holies. This is where they believed and understood that God himself dwelt. And only the high priest could go in there, And the writer reminds us, and he could only go in there one day a year. So this is the location system that is set up. A temple, a physical building where God has come to dwell. It's, It's sort of partitioned off, and you can only get so close to God indeterminate to who you are and what position you hold. Ultimately, the only one who really comes very close to the presence of God is the high priest himself, and that only happens... Uh, one day a year, and as we might, if we have time, talk about in a little bit, uh, in reality, he's really only in there for as quick as he can accomplish what he has to do and get himself out of there, because it's a very dangerous place to be. Now, we should add to this also, if you know anything about the history of Israel or anything of the Old Testament stories, that the tabernacle was a temporary reality, right? Until Solomon built a temple. And Solomon's temple was luxurious, but in the, in the book of Ezekiel, the prophet Ezekiel speaks about this idea of seeing the presence of God leave the temple as if smoke rising up and going away because of the continual sinfulness of the people. So that God's presence also wasn't even permanent in that place. And then ultimately the temple of Solomon was destroyed by the Babylonians and then later rebuilt in a small scale and then ultimately built bigger by King Herod uh, in the days preceding Jesus' arrival. But as this letter is being written to the Hebrews somewhere probably in in the years 60 A.D., somewhere in the mid-60s, we know from history that the temple was again destroyed in 70 A.D. So at the time of this writing, in a matter of a couple of years, the temple, which had been gloriously rebuilt, was going to be shattered again. Jesus himself prophesied that not one stone will be left on top of the other. Do you remember this? So the whole priestly system is built on sacrifices in a location that has no permanence to it whatsoever. Even as glorious as man can build something, it is still in peril to the destruction from other men or God himself vacating it. You see this? The author of Hebrews wants to say something very different about Jesus. Listen to what he writes in verse 11. But when Christ came as high priest of the good things that are now here already, he went through the greater and more perfect tabernacle that is not made with human hands. That is to say, it is not part of his creation. Skip down to verse 24. For Christ did not enter a sanctuary made with human hands that was only a copy of the true one, He entered heaven itself, now to appear for us in God's presence. Jesus does not enter a human temple and move straight into the presence of God. He he bypasses what the author calls a copy and goes right to the real thing. That is, he goes right into the very presence of God in heaven itself, completely unblocked, and he remains there uninterrupted. This is not for a few minutes, once a year. This is for ever. See, the location matters tremendously. When I was a kid, I remember my parents taking us I don't know if it was a long vacation or an overnight or maybe even for the day We went to this place called Pennsylvania's Grand Canyon. Do you know this exists? I, I have no recollection of it, except that we went, and I remember my parents telling me a story. We have it on the old, you know the old videos. Where my grandmother fell trying to climb up this thing and it was just like a road, you know, it wasn't it was Pennsylvania's Grand When we got older, my dad his, his dream was to go out west and we went out and we saw the real Grand Canyon, right? And the real Grand Canyon is something you will never forget. It's marvelous and magnificent and beautiful and ginormous. Listen to what the writer of Hebrews is saying. For all these years The priests have been taking day trips to Pennsylvania's Grand Canyon. (laughs) Jesus has gone straight to the real thing. Do you see it? It's not a copy. It's the real thing. It's not some small scale. Jesus has gone right into the presence of God, uninterrupted, unblocked, remains there, and therefore his high priestly sacrifice is far superior to anyone else's. Location, first point. Second point. Is timing, right? We've already talked about this. The job of the priest was to make these regular offerings for people and ultimately sacrifices. And, and then ultimately, the huge sacrifice was on Yom Kippur, which was a very special Jewish holiday. Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement. This is the day the high priest enters into the Holy of Holies and makes sacrifice and atonement for all of the people. Listen to what it said in Hebrews, I read it earlier for their sins committed in ignorance. Right? What does that mean? It means all the sins they've committed that they don't even have any idea they ever committed them. In right? the same way we live. right? We know some of the big things we've messed up, but we're pretty broken people and we mess things up all of the time and we kind of get used to it. Right? So the high priest would go in there, but listen, he didn't go in there just for the people. He also went in there to make sacrifice for himself. And so this was the priestly rotation, right? Regular sacrifices throughout the year, and then the big one, once a year, this annual sacrifice. And this had to happen year after year after year after year after year. The people were dependent upon it. Their continual relationship with God, God's continual presence in the temple, was dependent upon this priestly sacrifice schedule. The writer to Hebrews wants to say something very different about Jesus, listen to what he writes again in chapter 9 verse 24 for Christ did not enter a sanctuary made with human hands, that was only a copy of the true one, right, he's at the real Grand Canyon he entered heaven itself now to appear for us in God's presence nor did he enter heaven to offer himself listen to this, again and again, the way the high priest enters the most holy place every year with blood that is not his own Otherwise, Jesus would have had to suffer many times since the creation of the world. But he has appeared once for all at the culmination of the ages to do away with sin by the sacrifice of himself. Just as people are destined to die once and after that to face judgment, so Christ was sacrificed once to take away the sins of many, and he will appear a second time, not to bear sin, but to bring salvation to those who are Waiting. So the writer to Hebrews wants to say, listen, you know how the priest had to go every single year, every single year, and and if it didn't happen, destruction was coming? Jesus has gone once, and in his one sacrifice that he's offered for us on the cross, he has dealt with sin once and for all. That is, Jesus doesn't continually go and re-sacrifice himself every time I mess up. Right? His one sacrifice was sufficient for all of it. And not just mine, but all of ours. And not just all of ours, but all of the world's. right? And effective for everyone who would believe on him. So did you catch? The writer of Hebrews does want us to know that he's going to show up again. Right? It's not just this one appearing for sacrifice. He's going to, keep, he's going to show up again. But this time when he comes again, it's not to sacrifice himself again. It's for the final salvation of the whole world. You see it? When he will set up his kingdom when rights will be when uh, when wrongs will be rights. let me make sure we get that right, right? When wrongs will be righted, when when the earth will be restored to as it was intended to in God's original creation. Jesus in his sacrifice is far superior because of its timing, once for all instead of repetitive continual dependence. So Jesus' sacrifice superior in location, superior in timing. The third thing we said is it's superior in what we'll call its depth. That is, that the writer to Hebrews is very clear in the previous chapter, also in this one, and again in chapter 10, that the Old Testament sacrificial system, the system that the priests served in, he says, could not make us perfect. Those are his words, right? It could not make us perfect. We read earlier, it said that it could not clear the conscience of the people. It's an important differentiator there, right? It couldn't clear the conscience of the people. It dealt with the external, but it could not deal with the internal. Do you see it? We like to talk about, and this was a pretty diluted is a wrong word, but a pretty basic and simple way to understand sin that we talk about here at Hope. Is we talk about what we call capital S sin. That is the fact that our hearts are corrupted, deceitful, broken beyond repair. And we talk about what we call lower S sin. That is all the crazy and weird things that we do, right? The dumb, the broken, the mistakes, the stupid stuff that we need help with. The Old Testament system could provide covering for all the lowercase s sins, right? This is what the system of atonement did. It could not deal with capital S sin, it could not change their heart, it could not deal with the internal. And so it was always pointing to something greater. Than itself. This is why David, very famously in Psalm 51, you might remember this, is Psalm of contrition after his sin with Bathsheba, right? Famous, famous sin. And David in there says some very important theological truths. The first thing he says, and this is shocking as the king of Israel in an Old Testament system, he says, God, you do not desire more sacrifices. This is a man who has just messed up royally, right? He needs to make a sacrifice, right? This is how the system works. And then he said, no, you don't desire more sacrifices. What you desire is what he calls a contrite heart. That is a heart that no longer keeps producing this mess. And then David also acknowledges, and this is remarkable, how to attain this sort of internal victory. Remember what he famously says in Psalm 51? He says, create in me... A clean heart, oh God. Listen to his choice of words. Create. He does not say repair in me a broken heart and make it clean. He does not say fix up. He does not say dump Drano down the drain. He does not say pour Mr. Clean all over it, right? He says, I have understood the problem is that you must rip the heart out of my chest and give me a brand new one. It is the only way that I can be changed Internally, do you see it? Because the old covenant system would continually deal with the the external realities of sin, but it could never change the internal reality. And David understood that in the midst of his deep crisis. The writer to Hebrews wants us to know and, and, and listen to this in, in chapter nine, verse nine. He says, this is an illustration, he's talking about the Old Covenant, for the present time, indicating the gifts and sacrifices being offered were not able to clear the conscience of the worshiper. This is what we've already said, right? And he talks about blood. He verse 14. How much more, though, will the blood of Jesus, who through the eternal spirit offered himself, unblemished to God, listen, cleanse our consciences? Do you see it? The Old Covenant couldn't deal with the internal. Jesus does deal with the internal. His sacrifice is greater because of the depth of its effectiveness. You might say, well, how is this possible? How does this work? Well, the New Testament is is pretty clear in in saying that it works kind of in two ways, right? The first is that Jesus in his death and sacrifice for us has taken our place. We call that substitutionary atonement. He has died the death that we should die Because of our sinfulness. Jesus never needed to make atonement for himself. He did it for us. Do you see it? So he took the death that was rightfully ours. And then, and this is is just as astonishing, it says that that Jesus was perfect in his obedience to God's will. And so not only does he take the death that was ours, but he also replaces it with the obedience that is his. Do you see it? And this is what the New Testament always talks about as union with Christ. All those times it says, you are such and such in Christ. Right? You are saved in Christ. You are chosen in Christ. You've received all the spiritual blessings we'll talk about in a minute in Ephesians chapter 1. In Christ. So in some ways, to use David's Psalm 51 language, Jesus in his death on the cross for us has taken on the destruction of the old heart. And Jesus in his perfect obedience given to us in his union to us has replaced it with a new heart. This is what Jesus has done. This is the gospel. This is why it is effective in the complete sense to clear our consciences, it says. So, Because Jesus' sacrifice is far superior in its location, in its timing, and in its depth, it then becomes far superior in the security that it offers those who participate in it. And you remember the whole argument the writer is trying to make is, hey, why would you even think about going back to this old covenant way of doing things when you have Jesus? So this is the argument. So now what he's saying is, so, based on all these things, the security that you have in Jesus is far superior to the Old Covenant, far superior to it. See, in the Old Covenant, the people really, their security, in some way, depended upon the priesthood, right? The priesthood had to do their job, otherwise the people were in big trouble. But in many ways, what the writer to Hebrews is communicating here, and here's where we're getting to this blood stuff again, is that their security was actually dependent upon the blood of bulls and goats. This is kind of how bluntly he wants to put it. And what he'll say in Hebrews chapter 10, verse 4, is that the blood of bulls and goats actually can't make you clean. There's no security in it. It's a peaceless life to live this way. Always dealing with the external. Always trying to cover our mess-ups. Always trying to be religious enough, work hard enough, use enough self-effort to make this stuff go away. And yet it keeps growing up. We, we weeded. We did this massive weeding job outside. This illustration was not planned, but I saw it as I was leaving for church this morning, and it so frustrated me. And I, being the frugal cheapskate that I am, splurged on this special mulch that said, because it has preen and all these other things in it, it's guaranteed that you will have no weeds for six months. There are more weeds than plants in these two places. They came up overnight. Right? It's, it's unimaginable. Why? perhaps because when I initially pulled them out, I didn't actually deal with the true issue. I just got the surface. I don't know. In the same way the old covenant is just continually pulling weeds on the top, never getting the root. And so they keep growing, keep growing, keep growing, keep having to be covered, keep having to be covered. But what Jesus has done is actually pulled the full weed out and so you can be secure. The high priest on the Day of Atonement would get a bull and he would slaughter the bull. It was a bloody, messy thing. And as, as he slit the throat of the bull, he would catch the blood in a bowl. And he would, he would swirl his fingers in it and mix some things in. And he would quickly move behind the curtain and, and he would spray the blood on the mercy seat seven times to make atonement for himself. And you might say, well, what mercy seat, what's all this stuff? Why is this happening here? Well, in the Ark of the Covenant we read earlier is the Ten Commandments which basically said, God said, here's how you should live. And the whole reason they're making sacrifices is because they didn't live that way, right? So the mercy seat rests on top of the ark, which is holding God's law, and so the blood is on the mercy seat to cover their mistakes, right? He would go in there, he would make that sacrifice, and he would get out of there as quick as he could, right? Because he wouldn't be in there. And then he would take two goats, and they would cast lots, this crazy Old Testament system they did. Don't, don't ask me what it meant, it was weird. Right and, and and of the two of the two goats, one through lots we determined this one is the Lord's, and so they would take the goat and they would slaughter the goat, and the priest again would catch the blood as it poured out from the goat, and he would stir it up, and he would walk behind the curtain, and again seven times on the mercy seat, this time for all of the people, and then he would come out. And the goat that remained there, he would take his hands and put it on the head of the goat. This second goat was called the scapegoat, right? And the scapegoat who he put his hands on, he would announce all of the sins of the people onto the goat. right? Not necessarily literally, but basically in this symbolic way. And then there would be one person who was appointed to take the goat as far away as possible and release it in the wilderness so it would be remembered no more hoping that the goat could never find its way back home because then that would be a peaceless existence, right? So they were dependent upon these sacrifices, dependent upon the priest, dependent upon the goat disappearing, dependent upon all these things, and it was a peaceless existence because every year had to happen again and again. And yet in Jesus, as a high priest, you have someone who needs not make sacrifice for himself, who in making sacrifice for the people was himself hung on a cross. It's why it is written, by his shed blood, your sins are forgiven. Because it is his blood that is symbolically on the mercy seat for us. Covering all God's law in the way that we haven't bided about it. And Jesus himself is the scapegoat, Right? The way by which God remembers our sins no more. We, we prayed it earlier that as far as the east is from the west, Jesus has moved them away from us. This sacrifice. And, 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 and on the basis of this, listen to what the writer to Hebrews writes in, in chapter 9, verse 15. He says, For this reason, then, Jesus is the mediator of a new covenant, that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance. Now that he has died as a ransom to set them free from the sins committed under the first covenant. In the case of a will, it is necessary to prove the death of the one who made it. Because a will is in force only when somebody has died. It never takes effect while the one who made it is living. This is why even the first covenant was not put into effect without blood, and so forth and so on. So what the writer to Hebrews wants us to show us is that Every year at this day of atonement, all this blood would have this messy, messy sacrifice and it would just get them for another year. right? But Jesus in his sacrifice, it says, this is fascinating language, right? Has unleashed an eternal inheritance. Did you catch those words? That is that an inheritance has been opened up to you. Not just the freedom to continue living for another year, but the full inheritance of God, the full blessing of the covenants, the full love and affection of God and all His blessings raining down on the people. Why is blood so important? Because it symbolizes death. Right? And why is the death of Jesus so important? The author to Hebrews says because the will of a living man is never read. But the will of a dead man is read. Jesus' death enables and in fact initiates the reading of the divine will over the heirs of the kingdom. You see it? And I will add, the writer to Hebrews didn't add this, but we know this from other New Testament passages, that the resurrection is God's acceptance of Jesus' sacrifice. Jesus' victory over death then becomes the announcement of the will. The public reading of the will And the beginning to receive the inheritance. This is why Paul writes in Ephesians chapter 1 that in Christ we have received every, this is his words, every spiritual blessing, the inheritance. Right? Chosen, foreknown, secure. The whole idea leading to we have the life that we were supposed to live because of what Jesus has done. And we can be completely secure in it. And he, goes, he narrows in on one particular thing that should give us the full security that we need. He says "In the, the Spirit has been given to you as a deposit, as a guarantor, as a down payment. That is because the Spirit becomes then, in this analogy, the key to access the inheritance. right? The one who unlocks it and opens it to us. If you want to really take this analogy and make it a little bit shaky, we can go here, right? It's the key to the safe deposit box that gets access to the accounts of God, right? The Spirit is the way by which we latch hold of the new life that God has given to us and release the old one that we are living. It's the means by which we receive the blessing of God and take it for ourselves and live into this new life. We do not have time to talk about all this, but in the, in the fall, later on in the fall, we'll be doing a, a series and we'll, one of those Sundays we'll talk about the Spirit and His work and uh, the powerful role He plays in the life of a believer. Jesus' sacrifice far superior to an earthly sacrifice in location, in timing, in depth, and then ultimately in security. So what do you do about it? Three things. I'm going to say these really quick because so we need to move on to the communion meal. And, and this is not an exhaustive list, but three things for you to think about. The first is don't stop short. Right? I'm not talking about Frank Costanza's game. I'm saying don't stop. I'm throwing all these pop culture references in. You can pick them up later. Or if you want to ask, I'll talk to you about them. Right? We don't have time to expound. Don't stop short. This is what he's really saying to the Hebrew, the the readers of the letter to Hebrews, right? Because they're like, he's basically saying this old covenant system was good. It was dealing with sin, but it couldn't deal with it finally. In other words, it was always pointing to Jesus, to a greater victory that was to come. So don't stop short. Now that Jesus has appeared, go fully on to Jesus and stop embracing the old covenant, right? Don't stop short. And you might say to me, well, we're not embracing some old covenant. And I get it, right? I I don't think that you probably are. However, everyone inherently knows that they are in need of salvation. It's why we work so hard. It's why we care so much about what other people think about us. It's why we're so good at self-effort. It's why we latch ourselves on to religion. All of these other things, right? So let me ask you a question. How are you attempting to access salvation? How are you attempting to access God or, religious folks, how are you attempting to access God's blessing? Self-effort? Don't stop short. Performance? Don't stop short. Accumulation of stuff? Don't stop short. Jesus has come, and your inner longing and, and knowledge of, a need, of need for Savior that is pushing you to work hard, work hard, work hard to accomplish it for yourself is really pointing you to the fact that you cannot. And that Jesus has come and has done for you what you couldn't. So don't stop short. And in the same way, don't go back to something that is lesser than the greater thing you have now. During the course of this week, you will be tempted and you will give in, because I think you're a lot like me, to the reality of not living by the gospel line of thinking, right? You'll give in to performance. You'll give in to self-effort. Self-effort is not going not telling you to go just be lazy. I'm talking about like, trying to prove yourself to God. Uh, you'll give in to accumulating stuff or, or sort of the American dream narrative that we all sort of, eh, but really love deep inside, you know? And you have to ask yourself, am I really willing to set aside this thing that is greater, what Jesus has done to hold on to this lesser thing? Don't do it. Don't do it. Second thing, ponder the cost. Take time to think about the cost. God loves you. We talk about that all the time here, He loves you deeply. He has graciously enabled you to have a relationship with himself. But know something. It came at a significant cost. Blood is part of the equation. Blood is not neutral. So ponder the cost. Understand that you, because you were so loved, were bought at a high cost. When I was working at the bank, after hearing about what happened at the chicken plant, we would see these tractor trailers with cages of chicken come by and then we would see them leave empty right regularly you don't like to think about what happens there but once you know what happens in there it begins you see things differently right think about your life in the idea that Jesus came and laid down his life for you it matters how you live you don't live as to try to earn god's approval but you live in response to god's approval right in response to the willingness to the that Jesus had to pay the ultimate price to spill his blood for you. Right. Scriptures tell us we're no longer slaves to sin, but we are slaves to God. That is, your obedience to God in your life is a right response to what Christ has done for you. Third thing. Last thing. Model the gospel. Model the gospel, just like I told you it. Right? We love to model the gospel in the easier ways. We do not like to model it in the very costly and sacrificial ways. And much of the obedience that we're called to is very costly and very sacrificial. Let me just give you one example, and I'll allow your minds and the Holy Spirit to draw many more to you. This idea of forgiveness. We forgive easy things, Right? We do not really understand what forgiveness is. Forgiveness is actually a very costly endeavor. In true forgiveness we are willing to bear the pain of the exchange instead of demanding that the person who has offended or harmed or violated us bear the penalty of it. We are removing that from them. This is the gospel. Likewise forgiveness is like the picture of the scapegoat who we send far away that is we do not hold this harm this violence this offense against this person it doesn't mean we forget and just pretend like everything's happy go lucky it means that later on we don't bring it back up again and say remember when that's not forgiveness I would wager to believe that every single one of you has people in your life that you need to forgive. And it will be costly. And it will be painful. And it will symbolically necessitate you to spill some blood. And you will have to allow them to not pay the price that perhaps they ought to pay. And you will discipline yourself not to hold it against them, but to carry that goat as far into the wilderness as you can so that it never comes back. See, most of us have no clue what forgiveness is. I'm just speaking from that group of people, right? I'm right in there, that group. If you get it, you should be up here, not me. Because the truth of the matter is, the forgiveness that I've just talked about, most of us have never engaged in. See, we're very good at holding a list of wrongs against people. And so it comes right back to the whole point of the sermon, right? This is why we need the gospel. We have a God who does not keep a list of wrongs that we have committed. Who has shredded them. Who by his own blood has paid the price for them instead of demanding a price from us and who has sent them as far as the east is from the west, so that two days from now, he's not going to bring up that screw-up from six months ago to say, see, you did it again. It's not how he works. But this forgiveness has come at a great cost. The cost of blood. And blood is not neutral. We don't like to think about what happens in the chicken processing plant. But it's the only way that the dinner makes it to the plate. In the same way, the gospel announces for us that we have been bought as sons and daughters, that we have been released into a grand inheritance because we have been loved, because Jesus has spilled his blood for the forgiveness of our sins. Can I pray with you?